Hello and welcome to the AIU Spotlight podcast. I'm Gareth Long, Communications Coordinator with the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, and I'll be interviewing staff, students and alumni from the faculty to explore their personal experiences of education and professional life, as well as their advice for anyone hoping to work in the same field. In this episode, I talk with Professor of Social and Cultural History, Dr Lucy Bland. Lucy teaches on our BA and MA history degrees and is also course leader for the MA. She's currently researching race relations in the 1930s and in 2020 she was awarded the Social History Society's Book of the Year Prize for her publication Britain's Brown Babies, the stories of children born to black GIs and white women in the Second World War. She also picked up a Museums Association Award for the book's accompanying online exhibition. So with no further ado, let's get on with the podcast. Hi Lucy, uh, thanks Hi. for joining us today. Um, do you want to begin by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? I'm Lucy Bland. I'm a professor of social and cultural history at Anglia Ruskin University. I teach on the BA history and the MA history. In fact, I run the MA history and um, I research various things. At the moment, I'm working on race relations in the 1930s, but more recently I worked on a book um, and an exhibition, Britain's Brown Babies, the stories of children born to black GIs and white women in the Second World War, yes, <laughs> which has had a big impact because I mean, it's I've had more and more people contacting me since. I mean, it came out three years ago, but I've had more and more people saying, I'm one of these children, or my mother or father is one of these children born to a black GI and a, and a, um, a British woman. And, you know, could you help me find my American relatives? Could you help me do this and that? And I say, yes, absolutely. And also, although I'm not doing another book or a second edition, I can, put your, <laughs> I can put your story up on this online exhibition that we have under something called the Mixed Museum. So we're putting more stories up all the time. And it's extraordinary because oh, this is a was a very hidden history. I mean, I, when I first heard about it, I heard about it in 20, the end, uh, late 2011 when there was um, <clears throat> there was a three part program um, on BBC called Mixed Britannia about the mixed race population in Britain in the 20th century. And actually, I was involved in the first one because I had done some work on mixed relationships in the interwar period. But the second one um, opens with the George Alagaya, who is the uh, was the presenter who's a Sri Lankan, but married to a white British woman and has mixed race children. He he goes off and meets his brother-in-law, who is married to his sister, who's one of these um, children, called brown babies by the African-American press, which is a much preferable term to what they were called in, in this country, which was half caste, which is a horrible term. So um, he goes off to meet uh, Tony Martin, who was put in Bernardo's as a baby, but later is happily um, fostered. And then on that programme, there's another man who'd also, they're now you know, in their 70s, who'd also um, been in children's homes um, in, in Liverpool, in fact. And I thought this was fascinating. At the time, I was working on something quite different. I was working on the 1920s. And I thought I want to go back uh, when I finish that project to see if anyone's written about this. And if not, I want to look further. And so I went back in 2013 and found that virtually nothing was written. And I thought I really want to talk to these people. So I then went about trying to contact um, people, um, asking people to come and talk to me. And 
I had large numbers. It was absolutely amazing. And it was sort of very cathartic for many of them. Some of them had never told anyone about their their childhoods. I mean, it's bizarre because they often were growing up. If they were kept by mothers or grandmothers, they were growing up in very white areas. I mean, many in East Anglia because the, the black guys actually arrived first of the Americans because they built the air bases and then they weren't allowed to fly the planes in Britain. They maintained the planes, they did all the cooking, the cleaning, etc. But they built the air bases, they formed relationships and around the country they formed relationships. Um, but they were not allowed to marry their white girlfriends had they wanted to because the commanding officers who were invariably white wouldn't permit it. All GIs had to get permission to marry from their commanding officers and they would invariably refuse it for the black GIs and if pushed their reason would be back in the states there were then 28 states back in the states 30 of those 48 states had anti-miscegenation laws, laws that forbade marriage between whites and blacks. And at least 75% of the GIs, white and black, came from the South. So they came from those states that had those laws. And in fact, I know of a, um, a case where in 1947, a British woman went out to the States to marry her um, black boyfriend who'd been a GI, and uh, that was in the Southern state. He was in prison and she was deported. So, you know, it was, and what's so shocking, and I think people don't realize, up until 1967, there were still a number of states, 18 states by then, who still had these laws. And then it became a federal issue and it was banned. But I mean, it was, it was abolished. Anyway, so these children were being born um, in geographically very white areas. So they didn't have role models. Their mothers and grandmothers, if they were kept, were often very, um, hesitant to give any information about their fathers. They often lied to them, said your father's dead, or I can't remember who your father is, or, you know, I think they felt that they had to move on. I mean, some were told, but um, anyway, the, the, it meant that many of them didn't really know anything about the fathers. Some of them didn't even have a name. And if they were sent to a children's home, the children's home would tell them nothing. They'd just say your parents don't want you or they're dead. I mean, it's horrendous. Um, so when I met them um, in between sort of uh, 2014 and, and 2017 and did, did all these interviews uh, about six had found fathers I mean fathers by this time would have been you know found them earlier would have been dead and it was very difficult to find fathers not only if they didn't have any information but um, it was difficult because the American military wouldn't give information it uh, in, until the law was changed in 1919 that was pushed by a British woman who was trying to find her um, she was a, a white British woman trying to find her white GI father. Um, and she worked with civil rights lawyers in the States and got the law changed. But until then, they said, oh, privacy, you know, you can't. But so one problem was that they, you know, before 1990, they couldn't get access to the records in the military base, in the military personnel base in, in uh, St. Louis. Secondly, there had been a fire, fire in 1973 in which some of that evidence had definitely you know, the, the papers had burned, but there was still, there was still stuff. Um, but with DNA, and DNA has really taken off the last few years, um, and so I recommend everyone to go and do ancestry DNA, because that's what most Americans do. And in the States, many, many more people than in this country do DNA tests. And I think African Americans particularly, because they want to trace which part of Africa precisely their 
slave for parents came from. Um, and so, you know, you've got to be on the data system to find your find your relatives. But, you know, it's, even as I speak, people are finding relatives, not fathers. They would they would be late 90s. They, they're no longer alive on the whole, but they are finding half siblings. They're finding cousins, nephews, nieces. I mean, extraordinary. So people in their late 70s now, these people, but their lives are, are being transformed. Wow. How many of these babies were there born in World War II? Well, you know, it's very hard to tell. I mean, the estimate is, is 2000, but right. I'm wondering if there were more because I've now had, I mean, there are only 50 in my book, but then many, many more have come forward since. And then you hear of us who've died or whatever. I mean, maybe 2000, but maybe more. I don't know. It's very hard to get at those figures. You know? and How many were, sorry. sorry, how many were allowed to stay with their families, their, their mother? Yeah, I think the mother or grandmother, um, often a grandmother, if the mother's quite young, would step in, but sometimes she would make sure the child goes to a children's home. Um, I think just over half, or it's possibly 50-50, but those that were sent to children's homes, um, what's rather tragic is very few of them were adopted because the adoption societies, there were private societies before 1948, they wouldn't take these children on their books. They said they're too hard to place. Um, and a lot of these children just stayed in children's homes. Some were fostered for a time, generally quite unsuccessfully. Um, Tony Martin was a, an exception. He was happily fostered. But um, the ones that grew up in homes, I think, had a, a pretty difficult time. The homes were large. They were they lacked love and care. Um, I mean, there's a tragic story of two of the two of my interviewees who had met they're both, you know, mixed race boys. They'd met in a children's home when they were little and they absolutely bonded. They were the only um, mixed race or black kids, children of colour, and they bonded. And then that, that was in a nursery and then they were sent to another children's home and then they were separated. And it was terrible. And they were sent off, to, you know, one was sent to a different place. And um, I mean, I think the, the, the logic behind this from the children's home point of view was that should these children be adopted, they mustn't have close bonds. But it, you know, this was the biggest bond, and so so one of them, um, David, he was determined later in life to find Billy, who was the only person who he felt he'd really loved and been loved by. You know, it was extraordinary. So I mean, he hadn't seen him for years since they were small children, and in his forties, because he had an unusual name, it's Billy De Quick, he managed to find him. He actually lives in Cambridge, Billy De Quick. Yeah. Um, and he found them. And now they're in, you know, they're both in their late 70s, but they're in contact every week. They talk, they see each other. So this was extraordinary, this kind of very mm -hmm. close bond. Um, because, you know, they weren't, the children's homes discouraged close relationships between children, yet they weren't offering any love themselves, you know. It, 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 so I think some of these children have found sustaining family relationships quite difficult. A number have said to me that being in a family um, is really difficult, feels suffocating. They they haven't ever had that experience. They don't know what it's like to be in a family, so they don't know how to, to live in a family setting. Um, so I think those children's homes I mean, you no longer have these huge homes now, which is good. I don't know how much better the care system is. I mean, it's clearly better than it was. How many children would there have been in the homes back then? Well, I think it varied, but you know, it could be several hundred. So the one really? that um, Brian, well, Brian was um, first of all in a 
in a home in Liverpool, which was lovely, which was run by this um, Nigerian pastor, Daniel Zikati, in the heart of Birmingham. And then that was closed down by the local authorities. Um, and there were just a few of them. They were all mixed race babies. And then they were just put to a huge place called Fazakli Country Homes or something. Sounds lovely. There were 700 of them, okay, 700 children. Um, so very big, impersonal. You know, it, 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 it felt, well, it, it's an institution. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, one of the people I interviewed, um, he talked about how after he left, well, in fact, one or two of them talked about after they left the homes, they weren't helped at all. They were kind of dumped. And I think still quite difficult, actually, when you leave care. Um, and he was in and out of prison. And I said, oh, how was that? He said, oh, that was fine. I know how to survive an institution. That was, the same, you know, because he'd been effectively in a prison since he was a tiny child. So that's the reality of, of those experiences. Those that kept by mothers or grandmothers, and I mean, quite a lot of grandmothers did, did step in. Um, I mean, some of them had a much better time and a kind of loving relationship, but and were cocooned. And sometimes it was a village where they were known and, and, and it was fine. But some others, um, even someone living near Liverpool, which has got a long history of, of black and mixed relationships, etc., she was in an area which was white and she her mother was slapped and spat out and she was called names and you know so it was a, a stories of of racism growing up in the late 40s and 50s um were quite horrendous i mean see this is before well they were they were all born before the arrival the windwash arrival arrival of many um from the from the caribbean and interestingly when they met people from the caribbean um they weren't always accepted because they weren't African Caribbean. Uh, they weren't one of one or two of them have talked about. They weren't black enough, um, so they didn't belong there either. So that sense of not belonging, feeling displaced, um, is something that they carried, I think, all their lives, and it's been you know been very hard. And now that they've met each other, it's, it's fantastic because they've now got a sense. Belonging, they've got a Facebook group called Britain's Brown Babies, and they interact and and um, tell each other their stories because they've, you know, there's some real familiar patterns. But if you're kind of all on your own somewhere, you don't know that there are all these people like you. Mm. Um, and it may sound a if it's only 2000, it sounds a tiny number, but before the Second World War, there is an estimate of only seven to ten thousand people of colour in the whole of Britain, and wow. they tended to be in ports. They were in Liverpool, Cardiff, London, Bristol, South Shields. So we're talking small numbers, and so if you suddenly get the birth of two two thousand, that's oh, you know, that's twenty five percent growth of, of mm -hmm. people of colour within that period. And as you say, that this book it's had quite an impact you you won the best book of social or cultural history of 2019 yeah, um, social from social history, history society, society. <laughs> yes yeah. i know i was amazed you and know, your online I, I, exhibition won the uh, best digital engagement award from the museums association as well uh, how, how did it year, feel yeah. seeing this work come to light like that i know it's fantastic i mean it had a digital exhibition because i had a physical i have a physical exhibition actually still doing the rounds oh. and um it i it first went up in November 2019 and it was in London in two places and then it went to Manchester Central Library and then we had Covid and lockdown and it was stayed there under lock and key you know it was for a long long time then it moved then when it was allowed out it moved a bit but 
Meanwhile, I met with someone called Shamin Caballero, who runs this mixed museum, which has a whole history about mixed race people in Britain. And we realized it would be fantastic to do an exhibition, it, you know, which will be there indefinitely to put it up. And I could expand it. I could put many more photos because I had got over 50 photos in the book, but I had many more photographs that have been given to me by these people uh, who I'd interviewed. And so we put this together and, and, and during the period before it went up, it went up in um, autumn 2020, um, more people have come forward. So their stories have been added in, in addition to those in the book. So I've got more stories already. And since then, more and more have come. So they, they go in the last column. That's, it's got 10 sort of columns that you can open up. And the last column is called continuing the conversation. And we're trying to add more of these stories because people you know like to be able to tell their stories and and have that kind of validated and yeah so it yeah it's had this had this impact in a way that i had absolutely never anticipated i mean i knew this was a history that was not known about and hoped it would be uh, there would be an interest i think when you know black lives matter um really took off after the murder of george floyd um there was more and more interest. I mean, there was interest before, and, and uh, um, in Black History Month, every October, um, I do get asked, I've already done a talk in Essex um, last week, I do go and ask to, I'm asked to give talks, but um, I think, you know, there's a kind of greater awareness. I mean, it's just part of, I hope, many, many kind of researches done on Black British history, which have you know, not really been done. So it's, it's, but it's also part of a much wider history um across across europe and in indeed further beyond so you know during the war and afterwards there was the presence of african-american soldiers in various places so afterwards when you know in from um after 45 for 10 years uh germany and austria are occupied by americans the british and the french but particularly by the americans and a lot of babies mixed race babies born there and, and that's, that's another whole history. And I've actually met with people who've done work in Austria, in Germany and the Netherlands because they kind of passed through the Netherlands and you know they managed to be there long enough to produce a few babies. Um, you know, so there's kind of these fascinating histories. No, I mean, good. Actually, if there was a, a, a book that covered all these, I mean, we've done mm. a we have done a journal, which is a journal issue, which is um, um, an Austrian one, which is brought together, but it's in English, brought together some of those stories. But yeah, so it's a big, big issue. And of course, also over in in uh, um, parts of Asia as well. And the online exhibition that you've done, it sounds like it could be a, a valuable permanent resource for people who, who are trying to trace family members possibly as well. Well, I mean, what you, what we advise is that in the first instance, you you have your DNA done, ancestry DNA, which you do have to pay for. But then you go to GI Trace. So how I found people um, were various means. One one means was talking to the two people on that program and interviewing them. And one of them put me in touch with three other men he'd been in children's homes with in 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 Liverpool. And then I went to GI Trace. So GI Trace is an online self-help organisation which had originally been set up on someone's kitchen table in, in the 1980s um, to try and trace um, people's GI fathers, white or black. Mm. And um, this was the woman who then you know, went out and worked with civil rights 
um, lawyers and got the law changed in 1990. And when you got the internet, it changed to being an online group called GI Trace. So there are people on that who, well, they've all got some stake in the, in the issues. They've, they've, many of them have, have got fathers who were GIs or grandfathers or whatever. And there are people there who are very knowledgeable about how to do the process. Um, because when you get your DNA results, I mean, I, I haven't done my DNA results, but I know that it's quite complicated to make head or tail of them. And so there's that, and you know, to work out who seems to be a close relative and how to read that. And then the second thing is also to approach those people because you have to be really careful because you can imagine someone, you know, sending you an email, Gareth, and saying, oh, by the way, I'm a long lost half half brother and you say, uh, uh, you know, what do they want? You know, so I mean, mm. I, I think you do have to be quite careful. And, and there are one or two people on, on GeoTrace who and they do all this for free. Um, they'll help people. and They've helped quite a few of, of the people I interviewed find relatives, make those those first um, contacts in an incredibly um, careful way, because I mean, I, I know someone else who sort of just jumped in and blew it in a way because they just the people just backed off. It, it's very, very difficult how you do it. But I mean, the the good thing is that nearly all the people that I've uh, interviewed who went on to do a DNA test have found somebody and it's generally been a great success. I mean, there's there is one case which is a bit sad in that the, the people don't really seem to want to um, have anything to do with her, but um, you know, it, but on the other hand, there are others who completely embrace them, you know, totally taken them into the family. I mean, they often hadn't known about about them and you can see how it's quite sensitive because in many cases, the GI was married and in fact, the mother was married. Um, so you can see how if they were one of the one of the children, um, the fact that yeah, their father had, you know, a whole had kind of worms spilling but it is, but it is <laughs> the war. You know, the war. People didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. All those those moral positionings went out the window, didn't they? Mm. And, and you would you would just think, well, why not have a good time? I don't think people seem to use contraception. I think the GIs were probably given condoms, but. I've heard that they sort of put them on the end of the rifles and, you know, they they weren't, you know, they didn't use them. So there was, there were pregnancies. I mean, and also abortion was illegal. I don't know if there were excluded abortions. I, re I was reading on the museum that there was one woman who declared that the, her GI was her, the love of her life, but yeah, of course yeah. she had to go back to America and then she had to marry somebody else. Afterwards. She married someone, just, I know, so it's very, very sad. I mean, it, yeah. So, I mean, so, yeah, in fact, there were about two or three who, who who told me that their mothers had said this was the love of their life. Um, and you think, well, why couldn't they have stayed? But the, the GIs had absolutely no power um, about whether they could stay or not. They were they were sent back. And in fact, I know of a case where one black GI goes to his commanding officer and says, my girlfriend is pregnant. Um, I want to marry her. And he said, if you do that, you'll be charged with rape. Now, the Americans brought their own laws with them. They were la they were only under the jurisdiction of American law, and um, the penalty for rape was life imprisonment or capital punishment. And what's so horrendous is that 
the pretty little village of Shepton Mallet in Somerset was taken, the prison was taken over by the Americans during the war and they had a gallows and they hanged people, they hanged the um, GIs for murder and for rape. And those hanged for rape were all black except one Mexican. And the white GIs who were charged with rape got life imprisonment, possibly less, or got off. But I mean, you know, I just think there were probably, I haven't done the work on this. I know someone who, you know, I know some of the work on this, but I think there were miscarriages of justice because mm. this was a blackout. And, you know, what did you go on? You went on identification in a blackout. You know, <laughs> anyway, what happened to this particular man was that, you know, if you marry, you'll be accused of, of rape. And you know what happens if you're accused of rape. And what, he, he, what happened that he was then sent to another part of the country. So they wanted to discourage relationships between uh the black gis and white local women and it was a segregated army they segregated in terms of where they lived and um, where they the work they did but also in terms of leisure pursuits so there would be one nights with so-called black black nights where dances between black gis and local women and another night would be white nights and certain areas were out of bounds Either for, uh, certain towns or out of bounds um, for the duration to black troops as opposed to white troops, and you know it would it would vary. And also some pubs. I mean, quite a lot of the pubs would be blacks only or whites only. I mean, it, some weren't, but it, this was to try and decrease the likelihood of fighting between whites and blacks. And white uh, white guys would attack black guys. You know, back in the states, it was just unacceptable for a white, a black GI to even talk to a white woman. I've just seen yesterday a most harrowing documentary called The True Story of Emmett Till, you know, in the States, this is 1955, you probably know the story, but the 14 year old boy who comes down from Chicago where he lives with his mother to visit his grandparents who live in um, Tennessee and he wolf whistles a white woman and then he's murdered. Um, and he actually is, is a, his murder and his mother gets his body back to Chicago and has an open cask of everything's been done. I mean, terrible things to be done to him. Um, and it really ignites the civil rights movement. I mean, it's before um, Rosa Parks. And people don't really know much about this. Apparently, there's now a film called Till that he's, this guy is also involved in that's just come out, the guy who made this um, programme. So you, you realise, you know, how that kind of visceral loathing of the white in the south, the whites in the south, and I said, you know, at least 75% came from the south. And this is what the British were, were quite horrified. I mean, of course, British had their own racism, but they were really shocked by the level of racism that they saw was happening. So, you know, if, if a white GI saw a black GI talking to a white woman, he would, you know, get out of the way boy and push him and I mean they also did worse I mean there were lynchings so it was all underplayed because of morale issues but you know there were terrible things done so so the white the, um, British men were shocked at seeing how the white GIs treated the black yeah, GIs I think white British men and women were very shocked by that and initially they favoured the the black GIs over the white because they found the white GIs very um, boastful and quite 
condemning of oh, your pathetic little country. You haven't got any proper cars. You know, you don't have radios. You don't have fridges, mm. and you don't. You know, the, the, that kind of. Thing. Whereas the black Chinese were much more courteous. They didn't have those things back in the states anyway. So there was that. But then when they had relationships with white women. Then it changed. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of younger women who were very attracted to the Dutch eyes, but older women and, and older men, um, British men, weren't so happy about it. So thinking back on your own life, is there any one thing that inspired you to get involved in history in the first place? Yes. Now, unlike many people, it wasn't a wonderful teacher at school. I had a terrible history teacher at school who really put me off. It was just battles and it was dreary. And ironically, um, I, uh, someone came to my school called Mr Hand, who taught economics and he made it so interesting. I mean, subsequently, I'm not at all interested in economics, but I ended up doing economics A level, not history A level. And I, I did, you know, English and, and maths, funny enough. But then I did sociology at university to begin with. I didn't do history. I did a PhD in history later. I, I kind of got to later and what inspired me was reading. Well, Gareth Stephen Jones, Outcast London was a wonderful book and also reading some feminist history, particularly by Sheila Robotham when I got involved in the women's movement and realizing that actually I loved history. And in fact, I think I've always loved it essentially, but it'd been taught in such a negative way. So really what I got from that was the realization that how you're taught is absolutely crucial in, in to, uh, as to what you end up studying. You know, I mean, yeah. people know that really, but it, I mean, it really had a big impact on me and I, I sort of regret that I had this terrible teacher. I think it's something you recognize with hindsight, isn't it? Of course. Rather than when you're actually going through it, it's, it's no. just you don't realize why you're engaging with certain subjects. You just assume that that's what you're interested in and that's what you're not. But yeah, I know that history in our school wasn't taught in a particularly engaging way as well. And it's the curriculum at the time. Things yeah, like that. I mean, I, I think the curriculum is slightly to blame, but it's also how it's taught. So if it's taught in terms of narratives, stories that bring it alive, it would yeah. be different rather than she just had endless dates and it yeah. was just so boring. And so I do try and when I'm teaching history, I do try and, you know, engage with with those questions about how were the, how were people? I mean, I'm a social, uh, a social historian, you know, how do people experience at the time, mm. um, you know, so that you you get that human element. I mean, I would never want to be a kind of economic historian, although I, I'm interested actually in, in those issues at some level. They're really important, but I also want to know what it was like on an everyday basis for people and how they lived and you know, it wasn't the same as now. There are big differences, but there are parallels and yeah. You know, if the teaching has changed much across the country in in history now, do they focus more on personal narratives rather than facts and figures, for example? I think it's changed a lot now. Yeah, I really do. When I was younger, when I was about nine, ten, I did did stuff about Romans and Roman villages, and that was quite good because it was about how people lived. And it, it, but mm. it, it then went downhill from then yeah. on. So what do you think was the most valuable thing you took from your education? I think the recognition that the more you know, the more you realise how little you know. So I think my thirst for knowledge, my curiosity, has been um, nurtured and nurtured. Yeah. So the kind of idea was, you know, that you must you learn all this and then you know it. 
you know, you I mean, history may not be unique in this, but you have this recognition that there's so much you don't know. I mean, I went to a, a lecture in, at Oxford on, on Friday night about the Black Death by a global historian who looks at the whole thing at a global level. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, how can one ever do that? I'm a sort of micro historian rather than a macro historian. But I mean, I just thought this is so fascinating. <laughs> so um, I think, yeah, thirst for knowledge and the recognition that you you know so little and there's so much more to learn. And that's exciting. And that will always be exciting, you know, just even with with ageing, etc. I always want to go on learning. I want to learn something new every day. Do you manage that most days? Well, I think so. Doesn't mean I remember what I've learned. But <laughs> I think <laughs> I. That is the problem you know. nowadays. I find. <laughs> <laughs> I find I can remember so little sometimes that I can learn the same thing twice and not realise. You know, Absolutely. And that just yes. adds to the learning, I guess. But it's. Yes. Yeah, it is. Quite it's right. a lifelong thing looking back on my education that I was um, it was the traditional kind of this is what matters this is why we're teaching it to you and you get into this mindset I think as you're growing up in that kind of a system that well the other stuff doesn't matter so much you know just because this one teacher is really focused say on war poets for example if taking English literature or something then yeah. you think oh well, well that's got to be more important in the future rather than opening up a way in to the subject I think Absolutely. This One thing I end. regret about my education is that I've got no science because I was at a girls school and you didn't have to do science and I, you know, I didn't do science. I chose not. And so I feel incredibly ignorant in that area. And I sort of think I can't start learning that as well as. <laughs> but, you know, I do think to have a much more rounded education where you are made to do science up to a certain level and and your degree to have have an element of that. I mean, the problem is that means one you know, could go on being a student, well, eternally. But I, I do, yeah, wish I'd had science. I think we are, aren't we? We are people who like to learn. Our eternal students, they're troughing yeah. off from the cherry orchard. And I, I, I don't see how you cannot be an eternal student because you're never going to know everything you need to. Know. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> what piece of advice do you think you would give? to your younger self? Well, I would have said you could see a kernel of, you know, you had that excitement around um, certain aspects of history. If you just sort of followed that and, and, and sort of bypassed the teacher, but it's very difficult at the time. Plus mm. also have um, had some science. I wish I'd, so I wish I'd done history earlier at A level and then on at university at, at the BA. And I wish I'd done some science, at, certainly um, in, in my teens. So, yeah, that would be my advice. But I've sort of caught up, but I've had to, haven't really caught up. No, I haven't caught up on the science at all. You feel having a bit more science would help you with the history as well? Might. I mean, so the history of science is very interesting. I mean, I'm interested in the history of medicine as well. You know, those things are fascinating. And I mean, I heard on the radio this morning this geneticist talking about fruit flies, and I thought, do I really want to listen? And then actually, it was so interesting. <laughs> but I know nothing about fruit flies, and it's sort of the genetics of fruit flies. But you know, these subjects—I mean, that's not historical. Although he's talking about the development of the genetics, it is mm. historical actually mm. um, through his his work. And this was, you know, long before the internet. He was working in the seventies and eighties. So, um, okay. yeah, no, no, it, yeah, I think certainly it, when you move on to human migration patterns and, and genetics. I think the two combine 
yeah, I reading a, out of Adam Rutherford book. Which I was is basically going to say, the Adam history Rutherford of genetics. Is the classic <laughs> case. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so he's he's how to argue with the racist and also his book on eugenics. So I have done quite a bit. I've done work on eugenics. So I'm I okay. am very interested in eugenics, uh, just really as a historical phenomenon, mm. opposed to the nitty gritty of how they. Well, I mean, some of it was uh, I've recognised as being you know appalling science, false science and, and whatever, which which Adam Rutherford would say, but the how to argue with uh, racist, one of the key elements, key arguments there is that genetically there is greater divergence among people in Africa from each other than there is mm. between them and, you know, white people elsewhere. You know, it's just yeah. extraordinary and the, the melanin in the, in the skin is such a tiny component of genetic difference and there are so many other differences. Anyway, since you've been, I don't know if you come from Cambridge originally or no. where, where are you from originally? I'm from London. I live in London. Oh, OK. okay. Yeah. So have you learned anything about Cambridge since you've been working here that other people might not know? Yes. Well, about? what I learned, which was so interesting for the centenary of women over 30 getting the vote. So 2018, um, there was a lot of work done called CAM 100. On, on Cambridge suffrage and how yes. active many women were. And of course, Millicent Fawcett, who was the head of um, the NUWSS, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, lived for a time in Cambridge. There's now a blue plaque um, put up to her because um, her husband worked in Cambridge. And in, you know, so I, th that was very active. And I've also learned from my, my friend and colleague, um, Mary Joanna, who's just written a biography of Clara Rackham, who was a, a suffragist, but also a, um, a, a very involved in local government and was linked to our universities. There's a plaque going up for her as well. So there's all sorts of really, really interesting things I'd like. I need to learn more because I, the problem is I come into Cambridge, go straight to teach and then go back. And my colleague Sean Lang keeps telling me he's going to Give me a tour. <laughs> I want a tour. I mean, I've been teaching here nine years and I, you know, haven't really been. I mean, I've been around a bit, but I want to go and look at all the colleges. I've just been to a few and, and um, get the whole historical background. Yeah, so, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of history. <laughs> a yes. lot of history. There's a lot of history everywhere, isn't there? <laughs> there is. But Cambridge, yes. Well. We always do say that about Cambridge. Uh -huh. Could you tell us a bit about projects that you're currently working on, both at ARU and outside? OK, well, um, at ARU, I'm developing a new module for first years for their second trimester, and it hasn't run yet. It will be running in from January called A History of Now. I'm quite excited about this because I thought there were so many issues of the day in the press all the time, like climate crisis, like hashtag me too, like Ukraine, like Black Lives Matter, etc. But but most students will not know the long, won't have the long view, won't know the kind of history behind all this. So I want to take a number of these current issues and talk about the the long view. And so I'm also doing pandemics. So I'm doing that. So I went to that talk on the Black Death. So I have to. So from the Black Death of the Spanish flu to COVID-19. I mean, these are big subjects, but I want to 
give students this kind of sense of those histories and how people in the past might have experienced them and lived with them and how that might have been different or how there might have been real parallels. So it, it's it's that kind of um, experiment. I mean, I still don't know how quite this is going to work. There's also going to be a live brief. They're going to work with um, Cambridge Sustainable Foods. So there will be issues. We'll also be doing talks about poverty and the economy. But these things all link up in a way because, you know, it's all linked to, well, it's partly linked to the climate crisis, Black Lives Matter, etc. you know, and the Ukraine war. So, I mean, I'm not teaching single-handedly. Um, so John Davis, who, who, you know, is a Russian historian, will, will talk about the um, Russia and Ukraine. He's also going to talk about the rise of the East, about China, because I think that's something um, students might think about. But, you know, there's a, a lot of, um, issues there, I think. So was this for the MA or for the BA? No, this is for the BA. This is for first yes. years in their second trimester. So it's a okay. bit ambitious. So that's what I'm doing in the university. In terms of um what I'm doing outside is I got a, a small research grant, um, a BA small research grant to work with that's British Academy, to work with um Shamin Caballero who runs the mixed museum and we're doing a project on the interwar period. Um and there were race riots they were called race rights across the country in 1919 um, in in nine ports. So places like Cardiff, um, Liverpool, London, Glasgow, South Shields, etc., Salford, Hull. And um, these were about returning uh, white British men. They came back and they found the presence of a lot of men of colour um, who, who were from parts of Africa, from some also from China. Um, they were seamen and, and from the West Indies and they'd come and they'd worked there during the war and some of them were now domicile in, in, in these ports. I mean, some had been there for a long time, but there was a big increase because there was demand from the labour, the merchant navy, um, during the war. And there's a great resentment. These men think, the white men think that the black men have taken their jobs, which is actually not the case. There's very much high unemployment amongst the black men, they've taken their jobs, they've taken their women, and of course there were relationships with white women, and they've taken their houses. Again, that was not true. But there were um, attacks on black men and on the women, um, and there was, uh, yeah, I mean, there were some deaths, five deaths. I mean, it was it was horrendous. So this led, I think, in the interwar period, there was a kind of moral panic about the, these relationships, and the women were talked of in very negative terms. They were, they were uh, called women of a low type or prostitutes. And the children, the so-called half-caste, as often term, also talked of as very negatively that they had the worst characteristics of both their parents. And in these different ports, reports were written about this and what to do. And a little bit of this is known, but not very much. And so we're going to those places. I've been going to Oxford, which of course wasn't one of these places, but they've housed um, the letters of someone called John Harris, who ran the Anti-Slavery Society. Um, which may sound a good thing, but actually he was a segregationist. He he, he was also ran something called Welfare of Africans in Europe. He thought fine to have <coughs> Africans. He, he on one hand he was dealing with kind of wealthy African fathers who were sending their children over here to be educated, and then they you know he would help the um, sort of look after them, and then they would go back to civilize. Africa. So he had a very paternalistic but kind of fundamentally racist view. But he also was concerned about the presence of 
these black seamen and really he didn't want them here and the relationships with white women. He was very against that. So he was working, he was coordinating um, with these other uh, with other various people in these other ports, particularly um, Liverpool, Cardiff and Hull to uh, and London. He was based in London to um, put pressure on the Home Secretary, John Simon, to have a Royal Commission on this. So that's part of it. And they have all these meetings. Anyway, it's fascinating. So I've been reading all this material, which we'll be writing up and also we'll do an exhibition on the Mixed Museum about this because this isn't generally known about. And it's sort of a mm -hmm. precursor for those attitudes which are around by the war. Yeah, so I've, you know, we're going back a bit in time from the, the work I did on the wall. And we actually is going to inform a bigger project that uh, Shami and I want to do, which is on um, a multiracial home front, a British home front, 1938 to 48. So it's it, will, it incorporates some of the Brown Babies material, which is ever expanding, but also have this longer view and do work on evacuation, which is also, you know, children of colour, not just white children and various other the presence of, of, of black and um, mixed people in the country during the war. So that's the longer term aim, but the moment we're doing this interwar material. Are you planning to release another publication around these studies? Well, I don't think a book. I think, um, well, I'm not sure. There might be a book for the multiracial home front, but for the this interwar thing, it will certainly be an article or two plus an exhibition. But I'm not sure how we'll do all this. It's still a bit early days. Thank you for joining me, Lucy. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, fascinating you. projects you've been working on. Thank you very much. Well, a pleasure to talk to you, Beth.